From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We've been presented with problems today that we've never dealt with before as an agriculture industry, like climate change. And I don't think the approach that we've taken historically is going to work here. As long as I've heard the words climate change, I have heard that indigenous practice is the solution. This week on the show, we talk with Michelle Hughes of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Three years ago, the organization made a decision to put racial equity at the center of their strategic planning work. Michelle Hughes shares the story of their transformation and a story about a local funding opportunity for BIPOC farmers in Monroe County, Indiana. All that and more just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. In North Carolina, storms can shut down oyster harvests for weeks. Josephine McRobbie speaks with a team of researchers at North Carolina State University who have developed a web tool that might help shellfish farmers better plan their rainy seasons. 2018 was probably one of the worst years that we've had. Hurricane Florence came and dumped like 30 inches of rain and shut us down for weeks. James Hargrove is an environmental consultant and oyster grower. Like many other shellfish farmers in North Carolina, he leases his growing area from the Division of Marine Fisheries. We have three shellfish locations that we harvest from, Masonboro Sound, Topsail Sound, and Stump Sound. James is calling from the road. He's often traveling. Growing oysters is like tending a garden. Farmers have to visit their lease areas all the time. You're taking small oysters and putting them in small mesh bags, and then when they grow, you move them up in size to larger mesh bags. And uh, we probably handle the oysters and do that, grade them by size maybe 12 times before we harvest them. The state closes lease areas based on the potential for rainfall runoff and how it might affect the safety of raw seafood. When Hurricane Florence hit, all of James's leases were closed for several weeks. If we can't harvest oysters, we 100% lose money because it's not like we leave the oysters there. We still have to do farm tasks, so we're still paying for employees and fuel and other expenses to get to the farm and do the farm-related work. It's just we don't make any money. Along with 300 miles of coastline, North Carolina's seafood industry takes place on bays, sounds, and wetlands. It's the second largest estuary system in the country. For some of the more inland rivers and sounds, those thresholds are lower. Dr. Sheila Saya is a data scientist and associate director of the State Climate Office in North Carolina. She says that temporary shellfish harvest closures depend on where a lease is located. For example, Newport River, that's near Beaufort, it has the lowest threshold before it closes. So in Newport River, one of these growing areas actually has, like, if it rains one inch in 24 hours, the state of North Carolina will close any harvesting that is happening. But then out in the larger estuary, like Pamlico Sound, like larger area, those can be four inches or even just emergency condition. Closures can be frequent. They can also drag on. James remembers one closure in his growing area that lasted for six weeks, right during the peak season of Thanksgiving. You know, you plant these as a, uh, a, you know, we call them a seed, but you expect to have a certain amount ready during a week. And you, you kind of program your planting to have that certain amount. And so when you don't harvest that for 
a month and a half, your whole system kind of gets backlogged and your oysters are growing this whole time. You can grow bigger oysters, which sometimes the half-shell restaurants don't really want. Uh, so in total, I think between five growers up there, there was probably at least 100,000 oysters that didn't get sold. So watching for incoming storms is critical to operations. It's a, a huge factor in doing business in, in the shellfish industry. Dr. Saya says that most shellfish farmers rely on a variety of tools to keep informed about weather-related closures. A lot of farmers are aggregating huge amounts of data. They use everything from weather apps to the Department of Marine Fisheries site to local news outlets, but there's not much that's tailored to their industry. Parsing data to make a business decision is a challenge. When Dr. Sayo was a postdoc at North Carolina State University, she was working with her supervisor, Dr. Natalie Nelson, who studies predictive modeling and water quality, to assess needs for shellfish growers. She had some conversations with one very active person in the shellfish aquaculture industry. So that connection led to them brainstorming, is a tool necessary? And in this case, yes. And like, what could it look like? And how could we use openly available data from the National Weather Service and these programming languages that are open source to sort of build something like this? Recently, they released a pilot of Shellcast, a web-based application that shows lease areas, their current status, and their potential for closure in the next few days. Dr. Saya is showing me the web app so at the local public library. Between these. And so you can see we have a storm coming in. And um, tomorrow it looks like there's going to be a lot of rain along the coast. So you can the application uses publicly available weather data, both forecasted and historical, as well as rainfall thresholds of different lease areas to predict the possibility of closure. So we have this base map that shows the satellite imagery, and then the polygons for these growing areas, and then the point data for the leases, that all came from the Division of Marine Fisheries. They solicited user feedback with shellfish growers along the coast before launching the app. One of the most important features for some of the growers that we talked to was the ability for them to get notifications. Or for tomorrow, this area is going to be like a very high likelihood that it'll close. So at 7 a.m. in the morning, they would have received a text that says, tomorrow, it's very likely that your area will close. So then they can say, oh, okay, I need to go out and, you know, harvest, or I'm going to wait till after the storm passes and just wait on it. Predictive modeling for weather isn't able to create a perfect system, and the coast is an especially volatile area. This is kind of like weather 101, I guess, for North Carolina, like meteorology people. But we have these storms in the cooler months that they're really coming from out west. It's very easy for us to predict what's going to happen in terms of rainfall. But in the summer, we have a lot of very localized spin-up storms that just form on the coast, and they're very hard for us to predict. People that live out there, they're used to that, but capturing that in this application is quite hard. James Hargrove participated in the pilot program. He agrees that one application won't solve all the oyster harvest problems associated with high rainfall in the Carolinas. Like everything trying to predict the weather, you're trying to predict the weather. But he'll take all the help he can get. It's another tool in the tool belt, and you know it's not the only thing that we use, but it's great to have something 
looking at multiple parameters to tell me to pay attention. So we 100% use it. It's an awesome tool. For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McRobbie. After a short break, Michelle Hughes of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Since the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the protests and outcry that followed, we've heard a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. We've heard statements from corporations, organizations, brands, and universities about a renewed focus on racial justice. Much of the time, these statements are just words. They show up on Twitter feeds and take up space on websites, but often very little changes in the staffing and leadership or in policies that might make a real difference in the lived experiences of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or BIPOC, communities. When I received a newsletter from the National Young Farmers Coalition in 2021 about their strategic planning and new guiding principles focused on racial equity, I was skeptical. I went to their website expecting to see the predictable promises and platitudes and commitment to racial diversity with a token photo or two of farmers of color in a field. What I found instead surprised me. Most notable on first glance was the diversity of the staff and board of directors. That got my attention because I'm familiar with the challenges of shifting an historically white-led organization into a racially diverse staff, especially in the agriculture sector. As I dug deeper and started reading the extremely thorough and far-reaching accountability report released in 2021, I knew I wanted to talk with the author listed on the report. My name is Michelle Hughes. I currently serve as Operations and Impact Director for the National Young Farmers Coalition. I live in Washington, D.C. We have our our office in D.C. here. So I live in Washington, D.C. near our D.C. office. I started off our conversation by asking about her background and how she got into farming. I don't have a long history with farming, but it's certainly a passionate one. I always had an interest in animals and animal husbandry for most of my life and spent a lot of time working in small animal hospitals and then discovered large animal medicine and food animal medicine as something that had a really significant impact as someone who was looking at my professional career, maybe to become a veterinarian at the time. So I started working in large animal medicine at first with just goats and sheep. And then I started working with pigs and started learning more about the pork industry and became a hog farmer kind of without knowing it after I graduated from college. So I went to Haverford, which is situated in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So it's like 25 minutes from the city, but also means that it's not too far from many farm counties in Pennsylvania. 
So I became very connected with the University of Pennsylvania. They have a veterinary school and they also have a large animal facility. So I worked at their large animal facility. I did a variety of things, including veterinary medicine, animal husbandry, and also some research on different types of farrowing environments. So how piglets are birthed and where they're birthed. So I did a lot of that. And the facility that I worked at was quite large. So we had upwards of 800 pigs, I would say at a time, mostly mama pigs, but we did have a lot of piglets and some boars too, which are older male pigs. So I worked at a facility that was very large. It was just a few of us working there full time. And it was rough. It was tough. Um, It was definitely some of the most difficult work I've ever done. And I faced many of the barriers that young farmers face that we work for at Young Farmers every day. So that's kind of how I got into farming. It was really by way of animal agriculture and an interest in having an impact on the food system. And I just realized that agriculture and farming was really the way that I wanted to do it, even though I wasn't from a farm family and didn't really come from a farm background. It was definitely a transition, but a really welcome one. And it it really brought together a lot of my interests. Yeah, that does sound really hard. Was it hard as in hard labor or just hard? Yeah, I I think it was hard in all the ways. It's physically difficult. Large animals are very strong. So it's like physically difficult because you're trying to get them to do things that we want them to do and like move in places and ways that we want them to that we think will benefit them. So that's really difficult because pigs especially can be very stubborn and very strong-willed. And they're very big. We're talking about like 300-pound animals. So it, it really is a very serious physical profession. But it was also tough for me, I think, mentally because I was very isolated. Kennett Square, Pennsylvania isn't a place where I met a lot of other farmers that looked like me or that were as young as I was. I was just graduated college. I was very young, very early in my career, not a lot of work experience. And I was very intimidated by the agriculture industry, certainly on a daily basis, but also just breaking into the industry itself seemed really intimidating because there was just a lot. I mean, when you farm, you work directly with the federal government. And that felt like at the time an institution that I didn't, I hadn't felt a lot of trust with and also didn't have a lot of experience working with. So it was extremely intimidating to see, you know, a community of people that like were very connected and all uh, had that kind of institutional knowledge that I I just didn't yet. So yeah, it it was tough. It was it was tough. But there was I I mean, I love farming still. It was like, also the the most regenerative time of my life. So yeah, (laughs) I can still say that. Even though yeah. How did you find your way into your roles at the National Young Farmers Coalition? But it might be useful to just say a bit about what the organization is and what they do. I actually started with Young Farmers as a member myself. The purpose of Young Farmers really has always been to service new, young, and beginning farmers. I, I'm sure I don't need to tell you the average age of a farmer is, you know, reaching 60 and so we, we primarily service farmers under 40. That's usually who we hear from, usually who's tapping into our services, but usually in their first 10 years of farming. Our vision is a just future where farming is free of racial violence, accessible to communities, oriented towards environmental well-being, and concerned with health over profit. So there's a lot in there. And our mission, the how, 
is we really work to shift power and change policy to equitably resource the next generation of working farmers. We have our internal programming, which is the part of the organization that I am work mostly with, the oper- core operation. So that includes general operations and people and human resources, processes, development, finance. But then there's our policy and advocacy work. So that's where our work starts to become external. And there's also our organizing and field work, which is also very external. So organizing and field work and policy and advocacy are very much intertwined. And the operations team kind of supports that work. Michelle points out that the internal operations work is important because of the way it trickles out into the communities they serve. So our vision and mission really starts at, you know, the heart of our organization, which is how we treat our people that we interact with day to day, our staff, and then how they interact with our farmers, colleagues, funders, other major stakeholders. And do you sometimes, it sounds like they're mostly under 40, but they could be new farmers, but maybe a little bit older. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some farmers in our network who are farming as a second career. A lot of folks who are not, who don't have generational wealth or are not from a farming family have to build some of the financial capacity that it takes to be a farmer full time. And so a lot of people will do it as their second career because they've had the time to like in a different industry, perhaps save money to buy land and to be, you know, to be able to work a profession that isn't exactly as lucrative as a lot of other professions that currently exist. Right. So you're, the organization is, is basically about supporting the next generation of farmers. Right. It's about keeping farming alive, really, because the reality is that without the next generation of farmers, that is more diverse, more innovative, and has to be, Right more in tune to climate change, more in tune to racial justice is the future of agriculture, or at least that's what we believe at Young Farmers. So, you know, it's hard to see one without that. So that's what I mean. I I do think that the fate of the future of the agriculture industry does lie with the next generation. So do you want to say a few words about how you found your way to this organization, how you got involved? So there's a a conference that's held for farmers that work in Pennsylvania called PASA. It's a sustainable agriculture conference. And I met Young Farmers staff at that conference almost six years ago now and was just kind of felt like it was the first place in farming that I belonged, honestly. I had had a hard time fitting in, I think, in the industry up until then. And I mean, I chose hog farming, which is like not exactly the most diverse farming. Uh, the diverse set of farmers in the industry. So, you know, it is what it is. But I I had met Sophie and Holly and a couple other folks at PASA when Young Farmers was still like 10 staff. So this was like in 2016. And I just felt like, wow, this is like a place that like actually cares. I had been a part of other, I had gone to like a few local farmer groups with other organizations or farmer chapters around. And I just didn't feel the same camaraderie. I didn't feel the same openness. I didn't feel the same welcomeness. So that was the beginning for me was just the relationship development. And so I had kind of just kept my eye on young farmers. I didn't really know where my career was going to go. I knew I was going to stop farming. I was debating getting a master's degree. I was still thinking about going to vet- back to veterinary school. I had a lot on my mind and Young Farmers was an organization that really made me feel like I could continue to work in agriculture. 
She started out part-time as an organizer, setting up roundtable discussions in New York State ahead of the 2017 Farm Bill. The National Young Farmers Coalition does a lot of organizing around the Farm Bill, since that's what sets agriculture policy at the national level for four-year stretches of time. We'll have more on that later. I decided to stick around, and I also decided to get a master's degree. I really wanted to know everything I could about the food system and why it was so hard for me to get where I wanted to be within it. So I got a master's degree from New York University in food studies and at the same time kept working at Young Farmers as an executive assistant and kind of a special projects manager with our founding executive director on a variety of projects that really broadened my understanding of the work that a nonprofit organization could do on behalf of Young Farmers. And by the time I was finishing my degree and I was looking for a full-time position, Young Farmers was hiring a federal policy associate And I did feel like I had explored enough parts of the organization that I was interested in working in policy specifically. I did advocacy on Capitol Hill three days a week before the pandemic and fell in love with the development of policy that could have equitable change. I worked on the federal policy team, I feel like, at a time when we couldn't have pushed forward what we're able to to be a bit more bold about today. Michelle then moved to internal policy at Young Farmers. She recognized that she could play an important role in the organization's upcoming transformation. In 2019, when new co-executive directors came in, Sophie Akoff and Martine Limos, they came in with a mission to strengthen the racial equity analysis across the organization. This work had begun at Young Farmers as early as 2016. For example, in their racial equity statement from 2016, they admit that though their mission involves removing structural barriers for the next generation of farmers and ranchers, they have focused on land and capital, but have failed to address race, an issue that often outranks any other for young farmers of color. They go on to say, quote, When we tell the story of why our work matters, we frequently reference the devastating pace of small farm loss in this country, but rarely do we discuss the systemic dispossession of land from black farmers and the lasting impact of that stolen inheritance for their children and grandchildren. We don't discuss the lack of mobility for the millions of Hispanic farmers who are now laboring for others, nor the original violence against Native Americans who are now relegated to a fraction of what was once their land." The organization made a decision to put racial equity at the center of their strategic planning work and to center Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, BIPOC, farmers, partners, board, and staff. In doing so, quote, we strive to both confront the historical and ongoing violence against BIPOC communities intrinsic to our food system, and to orient agriculture toward the realization of justice and a world defined by equitable outcomes. Racial justice is foundational to making farm policy that honors our vision for the future, end quote. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young, and I'm speaking with Michelle Hughes with the National Young Farmers Coalition. 
we'll talk more about that racial equity analysis and the organization's transformation after a short break. Stay with us. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. I don't know that we expected it to turn into what it did. (laughs) I think we thought we were going to do like a general uh, comb through and maybe a few redesigns, but it really... You know, once we had done the first identification of gaps, we just realized we had so much work to do. And so I really pivoted full time to working on internal policy at Young Farmers. That's Michelle Hughes. She's the Operations and Impact Director at the National Young Farmers Coalition. And she's talking about the transformation that the organization has been moving through over the past few years. Our racial equity transformation began in so many different places. We had people, you know, speaking out, both farmers, partner organizations, and staff speaking out before we officially started our racial equity work publicly, right? We, I mean, the 2016 racial equity statement came from staff who felt passionately, who felt compelled, who felt moved to speak on what was happening in the world. And then the same for 2020. And we had gotten feedback from a lot of members of the coalition that the the organization really did need a transformation like this long before it started. So it really did be, it, it began from the people that really wanted to see the change. And as I said, the new leadership presented a, a just a new opportunity for bigger steps on racial equity. Those bigger steps started with a framework. The framework includes cultivating a shared understanding within the organization, which means getting everyone on the same page and developing a shared language for talking about race and equity. The second piece they call designing with intention, and this is where they examined all of their programming to find the gaps, to see where they were perhaps failing to address the concerns of BIPOC farmers. And they were also examining their internal human resources and overall operations. The third part of the framework is accountability. Michelle Hughes is the lead author of the organization's accountability report, though she's quick to point out that many others worked on it with her. It's a very thorough document that does not shy away from naming specific areas where the organization got it wrong and outlining the steps they are taking to correct their mistakes. Honestly, I've never seen anything like it. And I recommend checking it out if you have any interest in the nuts and bolts of what this kind of organizational change can look like. You can find it on their website, youngfarmers.org. Michelle shared some examples of their work. One of the biggest changes was our recruiting efforts. I think for a long time, we relied on kind of the same channels and places to recruit talented staff, and we realized 
in our impact assessment that that was an area where we were really lacking and might keep us from meeting our strategic goals. The results of their efforts in recruiting have really paid off. The National Young Farmers staff is a remarkably diverse team in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and class background, and they are guided by a majority BIPOC Farmer Board of Directors. And then another great example that I always love to bring up of success stories is Convergence. We have an annual gathering of farmers every year where we have just basic programming that historically would have kind of like a set aside in programming for BIPOC farmers, but in recent years has become a space that is majority BIPOC. So Convergence has kind of revamped its programming to attract the people that we actually want to go to Convergence. And then another example I give is the land work. Our land campaign has gone from a department that really focused on like private land ownership. Holly, our land access director, has taken it from this traditional very much the way that like a traditional white farmer would acquire private land and farm to really talking a lot more about the different options for shared land and even public land. And so that's another place where I see our work growing. And I always bring up the land work because it's really the backbone of our work and like the number one thing that a farmer needs to succeed. Can you talk about what caused the organization to really identify that the direction that the organization needed to move was towards centering racial equity. Like, how did you come to that? And what are some of the issues that Black, Indigenous, people of color, farmers face? Yeah. As I mentioned, definitely feedback. We listen to our audience. We listen to the people in our spaces tell us that they needed more designated space, more programming that actually talked about the issues of BIPOC farmers. And I think that they knew before we did that the future we were trying to promote is not possible without some racial equity efforts. We envision a future free of racial violence. It's optimistic. As a person of color, I will just tell you, I mean, I I look more more at racial equity as something that I want to make progress on in my lifetime rather than a destination. But I I also envision a future free of racial violence. And I think that with more diverse staff, more talented staff, staff that have expertise in areas that we didn't used to cover, that we now cover, we've just learned about all of the diversity in agriculture that actually exists and all the places that we weren't giving enough attention. It's something that we've definitely talked about on this program before, But for those who either aren't in the farming space or for white folks who are in the farming space might not have given much thought to what some of the barriers are for Mm -hmm. people of color too. Yeah, I think there are a lot of issues that BIPOC farmers face. Some are not very different from issues that white farmers face or really any other farmer. But the issues disproportionately affect farmers of color. So the issues that all farmers face, you can assume are either doubled or tripled for folks who identify with an identity that's been historically marginalized in farming. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But a good example that I can give of how issues in farming disproportionately affect young farmers of color is definitely land access. It's very expensive. 
And it's expensive in terms of finances, but it's also expensive in terms of knowledge. Land is not something that they're making any more of. The amount that we have is, is the amount that there will be. And that means that there is a very strategic fight over that land. And so information is really important. And so not being a part of a farming community, not being from a farming community, not being a second, third, fourth generation farmer means that you don't have any of that. And that is more true for farmers of color whose families have been displaced, have been put off the land, right? And honestly have been just economically exploited, right? We have, I think that there's just a history of of the farming industry that we see in the, in the, in the history of agriculture, we see so many places where the agriculture industry either stripped a a community of color of land or labor or expertise or resources of some sort. And so you couple that with today, the reality that like generations later, there are people of color who want to continue farming. They don't have that history to rely on. They don't have the years and like generations of wealth, of knowledge, of resources, maybe even of land to kind of continue that chain. So it's almost like many farmers of color are starting from ground zero. And I want to name that there are some farmers of color who, especially in the Southeast, who live on family land. I don't want to give the impression that there are no farmers of color that are like third, fourth generation farmers. They exist. But the numbers are dwindling every year. The number of farmers of color, the number of black farmers specifically, just continues to decrease. All of that is to say, it's the generational wealth piece that I think is just really difficult for farmers of color and student loan debt. I think we could could have this, a very similar conversation for both of these. Student loan debt can be really paralyzing if you're trying to start a farm business because it's often hard for you to leverage more capital if you have loans out already that are significant. And I am not a student loan expert, but I used to work on our student loan portfolio and the number of students of color that need student loans is disproportionate in comparison to the number of non-students of color that need student loans. So, you know, this is, it's, it is a very complicated sequence of events that has gotten us to where we are. So it's going to take a really, it's going to take very, very creative and innovative solutions to change these things. You have touched on this already, but I would love to just hear you articulate it again, is what's at stake for food and farming in our nation if, if these issues of racial equity are not addressed? Like, What is the danger of not changing course or of just of your organization not changing course? Yeah, I don't know. Everything <laughs> feels like to me. Feeding, um, feeding the nation? <laughs> I know. I mean, I think the things that we've seen in history would just continue. Logically, I think if we don't change, we'll just have more of the same, right? We'll have more of the same erasure and displacement that I was talking about we've seen throughout history. But beyond that, I think an interesting perspective is that the market will suffer. The agriculture markets themselves will suffer, which there are many of. I mean, the industry for agriculture is huge in the U.S., so it'll suffer without the contributions of farmers that bring perspective to the way that we've been doing agriculture for so many decades. We've been presented with problems today that we've never dealt with before as an agriculture industry, like climate change 
and private land is is starting to become monopolized like truly monopolized and i don't think the approach that we've taken historically is going to work here and i don't need to be the one to say that right like especially with climate change we have heard for as long as i've heard the words climate change i have heard that indigenous practice is the solution so to me like that in and of itself like if we don't have those people present we can't actually because they're the holders of that expertise we can't actually solve those problems so you're listed as the author of the young farmers accountability report can you tell me what that is and i know that it's a complicated document and you did outline a little bit of it but i i would just like to hear what it's trying to do and how you went about that or <laughs> the young farmers accountability report is basically a chronicle of our racial equity work to date and because it was the first chronicle we plan to publish more accountability reports but because it was the first we started it really with a little bit of background on the history of young farmers what you won't read in the report is that young farmers was when when it was founded was considered you know a majority white organization is still considered a historically white founded organization but in my opinion just is no longer a a majority white or it's it's statistically not a majority white organization anymore um and there are enough to me leaders of color on staff and on our board that I don't think young farmers can be categorized as white-led anymore. And I think it's saying that is er it's erasing the work that I've done. It's erasing the work of the people that have come before me who walked so I could run. It was a moment for us to say, okay, this is where we came from. These are the mistakes we made. Here's what we're doing now. And here's where we're going. And from here, moving forward, we are making a commitment to not do these things anymore, but also to live into who is actually a part of the young farmers community. I think for some time, especially when you start out as an organization that creates a reputation that it is led by people in farming who are white and think in a way that is only helpful to them, perhaps. I think it, it had that perception. It's very hard to get out of that. It's very hard to get out of that reputation. And whether it was valid or invalid, we still had to deal with the consequences of some people seeing us that way. And I feel like the accountability report was a moment for me to like bring the work that I'm doing to light and the work that so many staff are doing to light to say to our farmers, first of all, we take responsibility for what's happened, but also we're starting a new chapter. Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to say about it just as an observation. the. The word accountability, you know, it's just something that's so lacking in our society, in our political world, certainly, and in the business world and just everywhere. It just feels like nobody's taking accountability for mistakes that have been made. And I found it so refreshing to see some of that in the parts of the report that I read, where even, you know, leadership was saying, we did this. And that was, that was the wrong direction, you know? <laughs> and I just think that's very, that's just very rare. Usually people just want to get to the moving on phase and don't want to pause at the accountability part. <laughs> yeah, it definitely doesn't, it doesn't feel great. The process of improving, healing, racial reckoning 
it hurts. <laughs> like it's not a process that we go through and there's no bumps. There's a lot of bumps. It's not linear. It's hard to control. So it's difficult because we put it in this container of a nonprofit organization where we expect it to act one way. So yeah, it was very difficult, but I think it felt really, I hope it, it did for me, it felt really cathartic and like relieving to be able to share it with the public. And also just to be able, as I'm sure like other institutions have felt, the liberation in being able to say like, we made these mistakes was just very surreal for me. Even though I hadn't been a part of all of them. We, you know, the organization is still taking responsibility as the power that it has as an institution. And that is something that I really wanted to get behind and be a part of changing. And and the other thing that I wanted to say just about the organization not being white-led or, or no longer being, you, you couldn't consider it to be a white-led organization, is that I think that that's probably what got my attention more than anything when I first saw the announcement about the kind of revisioning of the organization is I went to the website and I started looking at the leadership and I saw that it wasn't white-led anymore. And I felt like, wow, that's, that's a real change. That's something that is so, it's, it, there are many organizations that are saying that they're doing things, but the leadership isn't changing. And it doesn't mean that they can't do anything being white-led, but it's not the same kind of change. And so I, I just wanted to remark on that, that it really felt like, oh, this is different. This isn't just people saying, we want to be different. Yeah. We want to be more racially diverse. It was actually making that happen. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. I have to give most of the credit to our board development, to the co-executive directors. I mean, Sophia Martin, as I'm sure you know, executive directors are part of the board development process. And that was one of the things that was on their list when they they gave a presentation to staff before they came on as co-EDs of here's all the things we want to do. And one of the big ones was we, we want to make sure that the people that we want represented on the board are on the board. And I think it's quite underestimated, actually, in the nonprofit world of the folks that we, some of the folks that we service, just how important and impactful a board of directors of a nonprofit actually is. And I think that that is because the board of directors of a nonprofit are generally kind of invisible. And so to everyone else, you might think, oh, you know, it's no big deal. But when you're in it and in a like senior leadership position, executive team, co-executive directors, those people all report to the board of directors. So it is very important that we have people on that team that are thinking about the work the way that we are as staff. Can you point to some of the changes that have already been made as a result of some of this reorganization and transformation work? Yeah, definitely. I think so. I mean, I think our relationships have become a lot more honest with all of our stakeholders for certain. Mm. Also, we are invited to tables that we weren't invited to before. I secured a seat on the USDA Equity Commission Subcommittee on Agriculture, which is still very surprising to me, but I'm trying to live into my glory. (laughs) So what is that? Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So the Equity Commission at USDA is a body that was created from an executive order in the American Rescue Plan by the Biden administration. So I am not a member of the Equity Commission. It is a 
that's a 15 member governing body of a number of subcommittees. There's a subcommittee on for the Equity Commission on Agriculture specifically that was stood up uh, late February. So we've been meeting for a few months and they're also standing up a rural development subcommittee as well. Oh, so what is the point of this? We are doing an analysis very much like the analysis that we've done at Young Farmers. We're doing an analysis of historical recommendations and current recommendations on a variety of topics that we think could increase equity at USDA. So, I mean, without our our equity work and our transformation, we definitely wouldn't have been able to hold space like this. I think we got on it because we did a mini version of some of the work they want to do and have done. This isn't their first, this isn't like the first ever USDA equity effort, right? There's been bodies. We're not the first, but it it does feel, it feels different. It feels like we're, we're, we're really making waves. Yeah. I mean, I think that's very exciting. It's, it is. Yeah. It feels like the ability to really make structural change if you, if you're going to be involved at that level. And because you had done that work already, you were kind of <laughs> ready. You had something to bring. You have some experience to bring to that. That's, that's really, that is very exciting. It is. And it's exciting that USDA is invested the way that they are in the process as well. So speaking of governmental bodies, there'll be a new farm bill in 2023. And I know that in 2017, that young farmers had an agenda and policy, you know, federal policy recommendations. Is that something that you are moving towards for this farm bill as well? Absolutely. Yeah, the farm bill is, it's the thing. So we just finished, wrapped up the National Young Farmers Survey and we got over 10,000 responses. It's going to be really helpful to us in advocating for the changes that we want to see in the farm bill in 2023 because it is the it is the data that is honestly the driving force behind what challenges young farmers are really facing. And the National Young Farmer Survey is the most comprehensive census that exists of young farmers. I don't want to put USDA to shame, but there are more young farmers that take our survey. So, <laughs> Our biggest reach in the farm bill coming will be definitely land access, affordable land access for young farmers. We'll be hosting a fly-in where we'll bring 100 plus farmers to advocate to members of Congress about the changes we wanna see in the farm bill. These are gigantic projects for young farmers. So we're like putting all the resources and time and capacity that we have into the farm bill because we have a limited amount of time to continue to have an effect on federal policy. Maybe we don't, but it certainly feels like we have a time limit right now. In the time that we do have, we have to focus everything concentrated on the thing that's going to have the most lasting impact that won't be changed. We don't want programs that we create for BIPOC farmers to be able to be attacked. We have actions that we send out to people via text that are very simple. It's like very small actions you can take. You can find links to all of the documents and guiding principles for National Young Farmers Coalition on our website, eartheats.org. And you can learn about current campaigns and ways to get involved by going directly to their website at youngfarmers.org.
I've been speaking with Michelle Hughes. Kate, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much. She's the Operations and Impact Director at the National Young Farmers Coalition. She's the author of the organization's Accountability Report and has played a huge role in guiding the Young Farmers Coalition through their racial equity transformation. The Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition, our local Young Farmers chapter, is following the national organization's lead. Here's board president Liz Brownlee. The Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition is changing intentionally in that we're becoming more racially diverse, more diverse in terms of gender, but we are a majority white-led organization. And that's always a challenge in trying to become more aware of racial justice and how it plays out in our food system and in terms of centering that work. In recent years, they've been running a fellowship program for young farmers. The fellowship puts together a small cohort of farmers, and they meet regularly to get to know each other and trade ideas and cross-pollinate and cheer each other on. And then they get a pot of money, it's about $5,000, to invest in their farms. And um, this year, the fellowship is going to be in Monroe County. And in partnership with the city of Bloomington, the three fellowship positions this year will be awarded to Black, Indigenous, or Farmers of Color in Monroe County. We're trying to be super intentional about how we center BIPOC voices in the fellowship and in the the structure of it and the process of how this whole thing plays out. And so that's a, a challenge and a real, hopefully a real growth opportunity for the beginning farmers community here in Indiana. The application deadline is fast approaching. Applications are due at 11.59 p.m. on December 4th. That's a Sunday. I would guess the application might take 30 minutes to fill out. We're not assuming that anybody who applies is a professional grant writer, you know, but we're hoping they'll lay out their vision for their farm and, and how they're working to move it forward. And we're so excited to see those applications come in. Find details at HoosierYFC.org or find the link on our website, eartheats.org. Thanks for listening. That's our show this week. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We'll see you next time. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Samantha G, Abraham Hill, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Daniela Richardson. Special thanks this week to James Hargrove, Sheila Saya, Michelle Hughes, and Liz Brownlee. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artist at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.